years of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I speak with my friend Dominique. It feels funny to call Doms my friend as I saw her professionally once. This woman is an amazing counsellor and it is not just I who say that. She is incredibly intuitive with vast amounts of compassion going around. I know this is my own bias speaking but in my mind she is one of a handful of non-addict counsellors who just gets addicts. I am happy to be able to call her my friend. I'm also very happy to welcome Dominique to meet me in the field and I'm quite excited to share her spiritual journey today. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There's also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. This is Dominique's story. Sit back and enjoy. Dominique, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Freddie, and you? I want to say young lady. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you very much. As I said, I'm feeling a bit emotional today after my mm. Kundalini session yesterday, mm-hmm. which was weird. I really didn't expect, expect it to, to happen. So I, I messaged the guy and said, is this okay? Do you feel like it? I said, yes, it is, definitely. Mm. So, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for chatting to me and welcome to Meet Me in the Field. You're wearing the, um, the armband already, the bracelet yes. already, yes. I need to order new ones. So I'm all excited about that. It means that we are growing. You are now, I've known you now for nine years. Yes, we've just taken years. a walk down memory lane. Nine yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> wow. you were the clinical director at the secondary facility that I attended yes. early in my recovery. And I liked you immediately. Oh. I really did. You were just so, so awesome. You were just so welcoming and lovely. And the atmosphere there was just wonderful. I walked in and I felt so, oh my God, I, I need to be here. Oh, even though I didn't want to go. It was like really like a home, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, like it really, really home, was. Learning how to look after yourself, making your bed and cleaning up. It was... Secondary was really a beautiful experience. What they call it, therapeutic duties? Remember the TDs? TDs, yes. I, I, I call it slave labor, but anyway, <laughs> let's not get technical about those, those terms. <laughs> but it's freaky once you, once you get out of that system, how important those things are. I, couldn't, yeah. I could not for the life of me understood what cleaning that spiral staircase every yes. bloody day would do yes. to me in my life. Yes. But that stuff is really important. Because we used to say the state of your recovery is reflecting in your living space. So if things are chaotic and messy, what's happening in your process? And if you can't mission that type of stuff Mm. there, you're never going to be able to mission it outside. Totally. Definitely not. Totally. Now, you're a clinical social worker. Yes. Cool. And where where are you from? I know nothing about you. So this is getting all exciting. Okay, so I um, originally come from Durban. Durban? Durban, born and bred. Oh, bridge. Okay, is it in Uh What they call, what, what do they say? The banana girls, you know? <laughs> I came to Cape Town to study. Durban, I think when I checked what they had available, 
if I wanted to do social work or psychology, it piggybacked nursing. So I was like, there's no way I can't do <laughs> drips and blood. That's not me. So I thought, okay, no, I'm not going to do Durban. And then Helen Ziller, funny enough, came to do a talk at one of the girl, I think one of the high schools. It was called um, Durban Girls High or Durban, no, Durban Girls College. Oh. Um, and she was there to represent UCT okay. and when I heard her speak about Cape Town and what it offered and how wonderful the university was I went home and I said to my mom that's it we're doing UCT ah. and how did mom take that mom always wanted to relocate okay. funny enough so my sister was already here studying medicine oh, okay. oh, wow. so it made sense for her to do the relocation when I moved but the plan for me was I was only going to study in Cape Town and then I was going to go back to Durban because I loved living in Durban. Like Durban, Durban is a completely different experience. Mm. Like when I grew up, it was safe to walk on the beach and have an ice cream with your friend or play on the beach till late at night, you know, not so much anymore um, because things have changed, but all over the place. Yeah. I just, it was just the most wonderful place to live. So I always saw myself going back. Oh, okay. And it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> life had other plans for you. I, I loved Cape Town. Just yes. fell in love and then stayed. Yeah, and the same happened to me when I arrived in Cape Town as well. I mean, I was from Johannesburg. Mm. And in those days I was doing athletics. And I was running for Transvaal. And the Transvaal hated the Western province people. It was just a rule. So when I arrived in Cape Town in 1995 and my soul said to me, you're home. It was going to... No, soul, I can't be home. There's, there's, no, there's, you're home. Mm. This is where you need mm. to be. Mm. <laughs> it was really, a, it took me a few weeks to realize that I really love it here. I want mm. to be here. Totally. So Cape Town has that, that, that thing. It's got this thing that just gets under your skin. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember saying to my family, you know, actually, I'm not going to go back. I'm going to stay. And I've never looked back. I've was mom still second. there then? No, mom relocated. Oh, so, so she's by the, that time she's yeah, relocated. She was here. Okay. My parents were divorced. My father was in Durban, okay. but I used to go up for holidays. And my dad was very much a proud Durban boy. So uh, a shark was, in true oh, blood. <laughs> he was just never going to leave there. So he was happy for us because we'd found a second home that we loved just as okay. much, if not more. <laughs> so I mean, I had the benefit of going home to see my dad, but then being okay. here where I had my mom as a fantastic support and my sister you know so and why good. social work I'll what tell the you why. <laughs> I'll tell you I'll tell you I'll why tell you <laughs> why um, and it's going to give you a bit of a hint into me is that I so what I did is I registered for psychology as my major and I walked into my first psych lecture and this professor stood in front of us all and said there are 600 of you in this room only eight of you are going to qualify. And that was it. Yeah. I thought, sure. Scary shit. That's enough to put anybody Ooh. up. I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm not in the top 1%. I've got to be realistic. I don't know if I can put myself through that in the hope that I'm going to be one of the eight. Yeah. I just had to be real. And I went home and um, said to my mom and my dad, I spoke to them individually, and I said, listen, you know, I'm going to carry psych as a major. But I'm not sure if I'm going to end up being a psychologist, even though this is what I love. Realistically, they're 8 out of 600. Yeah. You know, I don't want to set myself up. So they said, okay, well, carry it through and see what else happens this year. So in the 
trying to think. I think it was in the second semester, first year, we had to take social work. And when I walked into this lecture, just the, the lecturers themselves, the, they were so grounded and practical and you could feel exactly what they were teaching, okay. the way that they related to us. And I, I looked around me and I thought, you know what? Um, I think this is more in line with who I am. You okay. know? And I, I went home and I said to my parents, I think I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a social worker. I think my father almost had a heart attack <laughs> because his view of social workers was, um, you know, the very stereotypical one of you removing kids and you're working, yes. you know, in the front face. And he didn't, I think he did you know, my father wanted me to be an accountant in the ideal, but I think that's not what he envisioned yeah. for me. Um, my mom looked at me and she said, if that's what you want, go for it. And I've tried to explain to them that there were three different streams of social work. So it's not, I'm not the social worker that removes the kids and works with the community or does probation work, I do what a psychologist will do, except my qualification is slightly different. Yeah. And down the line, I won't earn as much as a psychologist will, but it speaks more to me yes. as an individual. And then when I went through that, especially with my dad, who obviously was very worried, <laughs> he I sold him on the idea and then everybody was happy. Oh, cool. So I carried on with that. Awesome. Is that a four-year degree? So when I was doing social work, it was three year undergrad, then one year postgrad. Since then, it's changed. Okay. So they've changed the whole. And postgrad is an honors degree. So so okay. you do you, you you do your undergrad and then you do one year honors and okay. then the honors is when you qualify in terms of other clinical social work. Okay. Okay. Cool. So then we had the whole psychiatry aspect and if you were doing probation, that's when you would do it in your honours year with community as well. Okay. So it was it was streamlined then to cool. do exactly what you wanted. Okay. But the benefit of social work was that when we were in our second year, we had to start counselling. And that's what I loved. Okay. Because I didn't have to learn all of this theory. On the off chance that I might become a psychologist, I could learn and then I could practice Knowing at the same this, time. Yeah. Oh, lovely. To see like if yeah. this is really designed for for me. So it gives you a taste of what it really means. And then for a lot of people that aren't sure about whether they want to do it, they then will transfer and do yeah. different things. But for people who want to continue, then you know what it means to be a social worker, what it means to do therapy. Yeah. You know, I never knew about those things. Mm. It's amazing when, when I grew up how limited that type of education was mm. I mean I did psychology and sociology and the social workers were with me in all two yes. classes and so were the nurses if I remember correctly and I remember looking at the social workers thinking I felt so sorry for them because all I could think <laughs> of was the atrocious working conditions and, and I, 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 I really stigma. thought yeah. why would somebody choose to do this yeah yeah and now looking at, 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 at you I thought that was such a good option for me, but I didn't know that option existed. And the thing about it is that, you know, like I'm saying, you get the practical experience from the beginning. And I carried psych throughout. Yeah. So if at any point I wanted to then try to be one yeah. of the eight of the 600, <laughs> yeah, then I could have gone for it. Yeah. But it just, psychology, and that's, I was so grateful that I carried it because I always kept that as an option yeah. if. And right now, if I wanted to, I could then go back yes. and study and then fully qualify as a psychologist if I wanted to. Why but, would you want to, though? 
but I'm so happy with where I am. Exactly, yeah. You know, but I at least have both. Yeah. A while ago, I also did the kind of, maybe I should go and finish my honours, or go and do an honours in psychology. Mm. And thank God, when I woke up the next morning, it was gone. I nearly put the stats. The thought of doing stats at honours level just freaked me the fuck out. <laughs> no way. Even I've got a husband who's a mathematician, isn't <laughs> he? will just kill me if I go, what's that? <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't so, see myself doing it. You are currently married. Yes. To a Jewish fellow. Yes. Did you grow up Jewish? No. Oh, cool. <laughs> what did you grow up? I did you grew grow up, up with a sense of religion? Yes, I grew up as a Roman Catholic. Oh, my word. So, Roman Catholic, not Catholic. So, my mom, just a bit of backstory, my mom converted. Um, she, I think, was a Presbyterian when she met my dad. Okay. She converted to Catholicism. My father was a Roman Catholic, so we were brought up in the Catholic faith. Okay. And, I mean, for me, my connection with God was always very strong. I mean, from the time that I was very, very young, I always had a very good sense of belief. And then when I met my husband, and he was Jewish, what attracted me to Judaism was this wonderful sense of community. Just... Mm the sense of, and it was just something extra, you know, the sense of family, the sense of coming together on a Friday, and the sense of building on this community, so it was sort of like a light went off for me, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm curious about this, I'm interested, and then I made the decision to convert. Okay, so you, you formally converted. I formally converted. And how long have you known him for? Back. <laughs> um, so we've been together since 2008. Okay. Yeah. So you met a year before I went into treatment. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think I met you because I mean I fell pregnant in 2018, so you weren't with me when I was pregnant. I fell pregnant shortly thereafter. 2010 or 2011? 2010. Abigail was born in October. I fell pregnant in the end okay, of yeah. Feb. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, you, so I think so I, I, just just, miss, I just missed yes. that. Oh, my word. So thank God I missed the moodiness. Do you know what I had? I had the most amazing pregnancy. Are you serious? I promise you. I felt like, I always say to people, my pregnancy with Abigail was like a walk in the park. Oh, my word. Just meant to be on so many yeah. different levels. Just so... I was Amazing. chilled, I was calm, I didn't have morning sickness, it was like a breeze. Well, promise well, you, well. Promise you, I, I, I felt <laughs> like nothing was changing except that I was growing this person yeah. in my tummy, you know? Freaky. It's amazing. It was so weird when I chatted to, to Wendy in our, our podcast, which I edited this, this morning before I came here, I saw her pregnancy like that. Mm. It was all... It's all very interesting to see what, mm. what she's smelling and what she's craving at this stage. It's all a very intellectual process for all of us. It's, mm. And then in the podcast, she said how difficult it was for her. And I kind of, how? They're just how, things you don't see. Yeah, it was. And I, I still asked in the in the podcast, and I think it was kind of nearly kind of bitten. It's kind of, who did you speak to about these things? <laughs> you know, kind of the, the classical recovery type of question. She said, my husband, because he understood. Mm. Mm. So. We, I didn't know she had a difficult pregnancy at all. But it wasn't difficult, just that I think this whole concept of growing and the sensitivity around, oh my God, I'm bringing a human being into 
in, into the world and she was 43 when she fell pregnant and mm. all those type of things but it was never discussed she looked at if she had the easiest pregnancy on earth mm. so a lot of pregnant women I think don't want to speak about how it is because uh, there's I think there's a lot of stress yeah. you know and they're always everybody's got an opinion about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing and, and when you see the bloody TV ads where everybody oh, is so man. elated to be pregnant and elated to have this growing tummy and it's midsummer and they look fabulous and cool. But if Meanwhile, you don't feel that way, <laughs> you kind of go, well, I'm not, should I be talking about it then? <laughs> exactly. Am, yeah. I, am I allowed to say that I feel like shit type of thing? For yeah. sure. For sure. I'll never forget, I had the, like, I had the most incredible um, medical team. So my GP, I remember, I think I was sick with food poisoning or something oh, no. when you're pregnant when you get sick that's stressful yeah. because there's certain medications you can't take and you worry about the baby yeah. and I had a very bad case of food poisoning and he just looked at me and he said you know what Dom if you mean to have this baby you will have this baby there's nothing that you can do or not do so just relax it's yeah. going to be okay and that was a big trust exercise because it was about knowing that there's nothing I can do. It's trust, let go. If it's going to be, it's going to be. Yeah. And then I remember just before, so you go for a few consultations before you um, deliver or have a cesarean. I chose to have a cesarean. And I remember lying on the table and my gynecologist telling me how the cesareans performed. And I was lying there very relaxed and... He, played a total prank on me but I was so calm just to give you a sense of how this pregnancy was so easy I was lying there and he drew this um, line going all the way up my stomach like, so how we cut is we go like with this line going all the way up my stomach past my belly button and I looked at him and I said okay well you just do what you do and he said Dominique what and I said well you're the doctor you know what no. you're doing you must take the baby out however you must take her out as long as she's safe whatever <laughs> and he said you're the first patient I've ever treated that's let me do this and trusted me completely and I said because you're the one who knows what you're doing yeah he said, trust well, the process trust, works trust yeah. it step two and three work just <laughs> trust and let go and there I was lying there very oh, relaxed yeah. with this this black mark going up my stomach <laughs> going that's how it needs yeah. to be that's how it needs to be totally fine no. At least it's gone, I don't care, just get this baby out. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a different, different way of looking at it. Sure. So, I'm interested, when you talked about the sense of community in Judaism, mm. Judaism I remember in psychology, or was it sociology, where we, where we were taught that the Jewish community has one of the lowest suicide rates in the world. Because of the sense, sense of, of community. community. Yeah. yeah. And I will I will never forget that. So when you said that, I, I immediately thought, yeah, that's why they have the lowest suicide rates. Mm. So that's really it's amazing. It's just a wonderful... I mean, if, if you are ever... If you are not Jewish and you're invited to a Shabbat or if you're invited to Pesach, which is Passover, or Rosh Hashanah, look, Jewish people, it's also about the celebration and big on food. Um, Lovely. Is, <laughs> so they have like big you know, celebrations in terms of gathering people and, and being really inclusive. Um, and if you ever go to a celebration with someone that's Jewish, you immediately feel that sense of community because you are included. Yeah. You don't feel like an outsider looking in, you know? And you don't have to know what to say. Just being there means the world, yeah. you know? So that sense of community really, it really attracted me. I remember working in Seapoint and there were a lot of Jewish people that worked in the company and they were always very 
willing and very excited to yes. share their faith with, with us and to explain to us what is Rosh Hashanah and what do they do and all those stuff. We always found that lovely. Mm. Mm. Just mm. that, that, that excite, the excitement about their belief. Mm. How did your parents feel about your moving, moving faith, changing faith? Well, because my mom had gone through a conversion, she was immediately supportive. Oh, okay, so she knows exactly. She understood. Yes. Um, and I think my mom also understood that going through a conversion and having a family, that it wouldn't have made sense for Abigail to be in a, in a family where there are two different religions. Yeah. So she supported for me, but she also supported for Abigail, who was okay. actually in my tummy at the yeah. time, because I converted when I was pregnant. And Abigail and I officially became Jewish when she was maybe about, I'm trying to think, maybe about six months old, around about there. It was a conversion process, takes a while. And my dad, I think, struggled initially, but he was just a big fan of my husband. He adored Farrell. Oh, cool. Um, so he supported anything that was going to bring the family closer. Oh, awesome. So. My dad at that point, I think, had also realized that, you know, me being an adult, I would make my own decisions. Yeah. Um, and he supported the family aspect of that awesome. as well. Yeah. Cool. What does the conversion process entail? So I Talk about to... the spiritual journey. This is the actual journey that you went on yeah. from the one to the others. Yeah. <laughs> so I converted in terms of Reformed Judaism. Um, so when you reform, it's if you're talking about Orthodox Judaism, if you go to shul, the men and the women sit separately. Reform, you sit together. Okay. Um, so my husband's reform. So we convert. I converted reform. Abigail's reform. Um, so I had to go to. I think it was a Tuesday and Thursday class every week. I had to learn Hebrew. I. Uh, Shocking. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, I am frowning. <laughs> I say this with embarrassment, but I'm shocking in terms of Hebrew. For my daughter, who's an absolute whiz at Hebrew, she really just makes me so proud because she just rattles it off like you won't oh, believe, and she can read it so beautifully. I really struggled to learn Hebrew. My husband was amazing. You know, I could recognize some of the things, and I had to learn how to read as well. But if you have to give it to me now, I do. I struggle. I struggle with reading Hebrew. Um, so you had to go to Hebrew classes and then you had to go to lessons just understanding what the principles of Judaism okay. were about and learning a bit of the, the stories and that kind of thing and what it means to be Jewish and some traditions and that kind okay. of thing. So it happened over about a 12-month, 12 12-month 12 to 18-month period. Okay. Yeah, twice my, a week. My sister converted to Greek Orthodox because mm. she married a Greek guy. And... For her, in order for her, you had to get baptized. So she had to get baptized in yes. the Greek Orthodox Church. In yes. order to do that, you have to have Greek parents. Yes. So she basically had to get adopted okay. by a Greek family. Yes. And then that Greek family takes you through the process of, of learning all the Greek traditions and the Greek Orthodox stuff. So they hand it down to you. Yeah. And then that is the Greek mother who presents you for, for baptism. Amazing. Mm. So that, that, that was a very interesting Beautiful, process as, 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 of, for us as a family. Because my parents was very against, well, my mother was very against this Greek boyfriend. Extremely against it. Mm. Until one day I heard my father saying to her, so what do you prefer? Um, terrible Africana or 
good Greek for her. And that's when she changed, my mom changed her. Now, putting it into perspective, yeah. like being happy as opposed to totally so, yeah. just doing what fits a comfortable box, mm. you know? I mean, I, we had to go to shul also as a family, and Farrell's family was also really supportive of the conversion. And the baptism is for, for, for me was referred to a mikvah. So I had to go underwater. And Abigail's little feet were dipped in. It was very sweet. Um, but the time of year was a bit of a problem. Because <laughs> it was in the heart of winter. Ah. And you could go into any kind of body of water. So it could be going into the sea. Or um, if you wanted something more private, it could be at a pool. So we opted to rather do a pool. But like I'm saying, it was the heart of, of winter and the rabbi came and I had to be very brave and go under the water and I little feet were dipped in, but it was a beautiful, beautiful experience, you know? Could you have chosen the heated swimming It wasn't the right <laughs> time of year. <laughs> it was like, oh. And if you wanted it to be private, then you had to go with who you knew that had a pool. Okay. So it was, yeah, it was a bit technical <laughs> and I was very brave. Heart of winter going in an ice cold pool, but it was worth it. Awesome. <laughs> cool. And are you now part of the Jewish community? Yeah. So you take part in, in festivals or, or yes, celebrations? Yes, especially and, at home. Um, okay. Oh, cool. So, I mean, Abigail goes to a Jewish school. She's eight now. She is eight, turning nine this year. Oh, my word. She goes to a Jewish school, and I mean, Everything that she learns about is obviously normal curriculum stuff, but it's about being a Jewish individual. And when there are festivals, that comes in through schools. So it's always lovely seeing it through her eyes because I, I didn't I didn't grow up Jewish. Okay, yes. So there are things that I've missed, you yeah. know. So when I look at it through her eyes, like getting dressed up for Purim or um, the excitement around... Pesach and learning the Pesach story or Rosh Hashanah and dipping the apples in the honey and all these little things when you look at it through the eyes of a child it really feels magical oh cool you know for for Christian faith it would be like Christmas and Easter when you see kids going on Easter egg hunts or going under the Christmas tree yeah. and opening it's always really special when you're seeing it through the eyes of a child okay. yeah cool the Roman Catholic religion is very... Now, I knew I was going to forget the word. There's a lot of ceremony. Yes. Yes. Is the Jewish one the same? Very similar. Okay, Very cool. similar. I remember when my mom came to shul with me on one Friday night. The only difference is obviously, you know, you hear in Hebrew a lot more, so it's not always in English. But my mom actually said to me afterwards, she, she walked out of shul and she said that felt very similar to sitting in Mass. The okay. tradition of when to stand, when to kneel, what formalized prayers there are. So it didn't feel that different, actually, you know, okay. in practice. Um, and my mom, even though she didn't understand everything that was in Hebrew, she followed a lot of what was going on. So, I mean, okay. it's very similar in that way. How did you end up in addiction counseling? So, going back to being a student... What happened with the counselling aspect is that we were placed at different agencies. So in your second year, you are placed pretty much, I think it's at like old age homes, to learn how to build a relationship. So the, our first block was sitting with somebody, 
hearing their story. There wasn't really, it was learning how to ask questions and remembering what somebody had said to us. Third year, we had placements around group therapy um, and individual counseling and community work. So I was placed at an organization that worked with a lot of schools in Cape Town and where there were issues, we would then, myself and you would always partner up with like a colleague, so to speak, another student, we were, we were then asked to go to a school where there was an issue and to intervene in terms of finding out how we could help and talking to any of the, you know, wrongdoers, yeah. like that, if, because it was always like a disciplinary thing. Um, and I was sent to a school and why I was called out was because there were, I'm trying to think, there were about three or four individuals that were using drugs and had stolen one of the teacher's cell phones. Ah. And the principal was really upset, okay, because there was a disrespect around the teacher, but also they'd been problematic around using drugs at school, and they'd almost formed like a bit of a clique. Okay. So that was my first experience of being sent to the school. Not great being sent in a disciplinary role, because I'm saying it was like very much the, you are, now we're calling in the social worker or yeah. the counselor to come and deal with you. But I remember sitting with, I was allocated two of the individuals, and I remember sitting with the one, and just a really gentle soul, and had he had a story, and I wanted to listen to it. So I wasn't going to go in and hear about the using and you're so wrong to steal the teacher's cell phone and go into yeah. that angle. He had a story. And when he started sharing his story, lots of family stuff, um, low self-esteem, really struggled to connect with himself, was looking for affirmation, got caught up in this little clique. You know, drugs were offered as the sort of make you feel better. Yeah. And he started and he just couldn't stop because it did make him feel better. And I was really intrigued just around addiction is so, I mean, so stigmatized and largely misunderstood that people just look at the action of the drag taking, but they don't look at the emotion and the story. Mm. And when I started working with this, with, with this boy, I remember feeling like this is what I need to do. Okay. Like someone needs to understand and hear the story oh, wow. and then after that when I qualified I was looking for work um, and a position came up an NGO and I applied and I started working there and it was an NGO dealing with addiction awesome so you were in this field right from the start basically. right from the start I mean I remember that with all of the other cases that I was allocated that individual stood out the most and what was going on for him oh, that wow. was I just felt like this is what I needed to yeah. do I oh, needed fantastic. to hear I needed to hear the story and understand so that I could help him yeah one thing that when I think of you I think of the day you shocked the living daylights out of me with the most amazing intuition mm-hmm. I'll tell you the story now but have you always been an intuitive person do, do you think of yourself as an intuitive person or do you get feedback from clients that you're intuitive? Like ever since I can remember, I mean, when I was a little girl, you know, you know how all kids want to be teachers and want to be vets and want to be all these <laughs> things. I always had a really good listening ear. So when I was, 
younger, like growing up, I would always hear what was going on and friends who were going through a rough time. My mom was also a great listener, so I think I had a really good role model there. I was always really good at listening, but not just listening to what people were saying, really hearing what was going on. So I've always carried that, you know, that I've always had a sense of knowing like if something doesn't feel right or if somebody's going through something, I've always had the sense of knowing that something is wrong or something needs to be addressed. I've always had it with me for as long as I can remember. Wow. Because when we were doing that trauma course, that wonderful wow what a weekend that, that was. was a beautiful weekend yeah, that was amazing. i missed doing those weekends those were just oh, that, phenomenal those were wonderful i was in a group of four when we did our trauma eggs yes and one of the girls did a trauma egg and you said to her when she was finished i want you after this now it was a rainy weekend i yes. want you after this session to take your shoes off and go and stand, stand in, in the mud, the mud. <laughs> yes i mean nothing she said had anything to do with mud or with whatever yes. Yes, and I she turned that. around and she stormed to the bathroom and says, well, And she vomited, yes, I remember. And I was going, fuck me, silly. <laughs> so that was when I just, this woman has this something. And I always think of you as, as this absolutely intuitive person. And I've not met one person who's ever been with you in counseling who had anything bad to say about you. It just, that, I'm, sure that, I'm sure there are a couple. <laughs> in, treat, in treatment. In treatment, Of I'm course, sure, in, yeah. in treatment, you're always going to, going to get people who hate the counsellors. But everybody else who sees you privately is just kind of, this is the best counsellor ever. That's amazing. And do you experience this kind of intuition in... And it's just a gift. You, they, they, you can't teach me what to do. <laughs> Maybe shut the fuck up and listen, Freddie, for once in your life. <laughs> present <laughs> don't think of 50 million things at the same time when somebody speaks to you <laughs> that's my biggest <laughs> challenge oh my god but even those trauma weekends all of us as staff had to undergo our own trauma yeah. process which was incredibly powerful because going back to my social work one of the one of the lectures that we also had so the psychology first lecture was eight out of 600 of you are going to qualify in the social work one we had an amazing lecturer who was really involved in community work um and he looked at a whole bunch of us and he said some of you sitting in this room are here because you want to make a difference and you want to be of service therapeutically in the community in some way the rest of you are sitting here because you want to fix yourselves And I very much felt like I was one of the individuals to be of service to help. I didn't need to fix myself because I'd been through a process when I was younger of going through therapy and understanding myself better. And I valued that relationship that I had with my therapist back then. But when we did our trauma process, I remember standing up there and having to present my own trauma egg Ah. and being absolutely petrified because it was about standing up and having everybody else see that hey this is me and this is what I've gone through and developing the understanding and the empathy that when somebody does that when somebody trusts risks and shares exactly what that means that we can't underestimate the power of that sharing but also just how absolutely scary that can also be so going through that process was 
was really beautiful and empowering, absolutely petrifying as well, but it, it helped me grow as a therapist because it also just reminded me once again that, you know what, when somebody shares, the power in doing that is something one can't underestimate at all. And the least you can do is listen attentively. Listen attentively. Yeah. Let them feel heard. Let them feel heard. 100%. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I think let's end there. Where are we? Oh my God, we did chat quite nicely. This is wonderful. It's over half an hour already. Brilliant. Yeah. Cool. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for taking time out of your busy day. Thank you for having um, me. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Freddie. the spiritual journey. I found it very interesting and exciting to hear about Dominique's conversion to Judaism. I must say, I was a bit disappointed, as I believed she was going to share a secret to intuitism with me. But maybe I have to accept it is one of those things which you either have or not. And she does have it. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor, or on Twitter at Rensburg Freddy, or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank Doms for her time and energy in talking to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye. <laughs>